Awesome. Well, Melanie, welcome to the Future Fashion Business Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm very, very excited for the conversation. And yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, before we get everything rolling, Melanie, I do want to get to know a little bit more about your story in general, because you've had, you've had, you've had quite the career with a lot of different things. So can you give <laughs> us uh, just a quick background on how you actually got started uh, what's what's Melanie's story? And feel free to talk about it as much as you want. Okay, of course. Um, well, I grew up in France, which is probably where it all began. And uh, when I was in France, I you know, really wanted to study abroad. I really wanted to discover new things. And I uh, applied to Brown, early decision, and got in. And that was probably like the most defining thing that um, changed the trajectory of my life is being able to study in the United States in you know, a, such a liberal place as Brown. And I really, really loved it. I was in school during the financial crisis. So, you know, being a French person, like we started getting really worried about getting visas uh, because not very many were being granted at the time. And I got lucky uh, and got a job on uh, Wall Street at Goldman Sachs uh, as a financial analyst, which was very challenging, but also like, probably the best training that I could have ever hoped for. It was, I was working in energy, which is, I was working in energy, which is um, probably not uh, where my heart lies. I'm someone who is like so sustainability focused. So working in all, all these like, you know, oil companies was, um, was, uh, was not for me in the long term, but I learned so much. And when I left, um, I joined a team at DIG, uh, which is a hospitality group in New York that really focused on bringing vegetables and bringing good food to the masses. So I stayed there for three years. I um, was really lucky to work for a CEO that allowed me to cut my teeth on the job. And then um, I was recruited by the team over at Glossier. They were looking to make a foray into um, IRL after being, you know, very much a digitally native brand that had really was born on Instagram and had a, such a strong online community. And from there, um, I ended up overseeing all of the offline experiences for Glossier and uh, the store management and new stores and uh, doing a lot of uh, also like design and concept for them with their incredible creative team. Mm -hmm. And um, th those were really, really formative years as well. Um, I ended up also working on a really fun project, which was launching Glossier in France with uh, a couple of teammates. And then once I left Glossier, I started consulting for a number of brands, really helping them Kind of define the third dimension of their digital brand. So whether it um, was you know working for um, StockX, which you know also has a really strong community, doesn't hold any inventory, but you know wanting to create these churches of um, StockX in different places, or you know just um, doing some advisory for some hospitality work, and um, you know throughout my time. Working with different clients, I, I just I, I just really wanted to kind of take my time to find the right thing for me because I felt like I had been on the the startup hamster wheel for a little bit, um, and uh, and I wanted to really find the thing that would feel like it was a bit more of a part of my identity, which I, I don't want to say I now regret, but I think we're definitely trying to move the other way now and uh, and take that in the other direction. And so um, when I had the idea for Gia, which had really been in front of my eyes for years already because I, I don't drink alcohol for no particular reason other than I don't feel good when I drink alcohol. And um, it's a friend of mine that said, you know, I was complaining about how there's no 
um, there's no good thing for me to drink that goes well with food. And he said, I think we know what you're going to be working on next. And, and that's kind of where it all started early 2019. Awesome. Wow. And when it came to, uh, let me see, let me run back because I think there's so many different cool things that we can talk about your story. First off the Goldman Sachs financial analyst sort of start. Uh, you said that it was a very, very productive experience from, um, from a learning curve experience. So what about working in Goldman Sachs, looking back in hindsight, which was one of the, which one, which was one of the biggest benefits of working for Goldman Sachs at that particular time as well? Well, I think that, you know, obviously we were in person and, you know, looking back, like, I'm so glad that that the pandemic um, did not impact my early years because I feel like I learned so much from just being next to people and being involved in the room when more senior people were talking and analyzing things. But, you know, the level of quality for their clients at Goldman is really unlike anything I've ever seen before. And, and they've taught me like this attention to detail. I can spot an extra space, you know, in between two words on a deck, like I'm a hundred miles. And um, I think just really this- If the, if this, the presentation is logo, if it's just the centimeter or a millimeter offset. Or yeah, I mean, I'm crazy, <laughs> like, you know? Um, and, uh, but but I, I think that that's something that I'm really grateful for. And also just being able to look, you know, at a PNL for a company and understand it and having these numbers be tool without being like a defining of my entire career. It's just like something that you add to your toolkit. Awesome. And when you finished working at Goldman Sachs, what sort of, what, what opportunity presented this or, or what, what motivated you to change industry completely? Was it just an opportunity that just presented itself to you? You were like, oh, whatever, I'll just try it out. Was it something that you always to do? Was it that you didn't quite find yourself being in the banking industry long-term, like what, what was the first thing that happened to you that, that made that first change? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think the, you know, the, I did not like the industry, um, not the finance industry. I think if I had worked in a maybe more tangible, um, industry, I could have maybe stayed because I, I liked finance and I think it came, um, I don't want to say easy because nothing at Goldman was easy, but, but I understood it and, and I, I felt like I really appreciated the work. Um, but I just really didn't like energy and I saw no potential long-term career for it, um, in, for me in it. And so I, I wanted to, to switch and, um, maybe, you know, work in consumer or work in food or work in an industry that maybe was more tangible and I could understand better. So that was kind of, you know, you know that was the main part of it. Obviously the lifestyle, um, was like extremely challenging. We worked really late every night, every weekend. It was constant. So, you know, I think if I had seen more of like a potential, like a long-term potential for me and like a career path, um, I would have stuck with it, but I didn't. And I very coincidentally was introduced to the founder of Digin and was um, really, you know, enthused by the story and this idea of, you know, I, I just like, I realized when I moved to the U S that like the, there was something broken with the, the supply chain and the food system, like my stomach started to hurt constantly. Everyone was gaining a ton of weight in college. And I realized like the quality of the food that I was accustomed to in France was um, not something that I could, should have taken for granted because it's just something that was um, not approachable to everyone in the United States. And so when I met um, Adam, um, I was, you know, very enthused by his mission and, and I really wanted to join their team. Mm -hmm. 
So your inner French woman eventually got the best of you. You wanted to be around something that was tangible, something that was either uh, physically, that it, it had a physical impact, whether in your soul, in your mind, in your body, and you, you ended up working at Digan, right? Yes, exactly. Awesome. And when it came to Digan, because I mean, it was an extremely, was it when Digan was, was starting or was it, it, was, it was in its early stages? Um, they had six restaurants, so they had started right. a few years ago already, but their early growth, you know, they were really just like investing everything they were making and growing more slowly. So it was, uh, it was before they expanded outside of New York. I think they had four or six restaurants. Right. And so it was, it was still a highly entrepreneurial role. Like it, it wasn't like highly. from scratch, but it was still highly entrepreneurial, right? Highly. It was a small team working a lot. It was very much like the startup experience and it was right. awesome. Awesome. And what, what got, was you, what, like how, what was your first role there? Because I mean, I know startup roles are a little bit, not, not really defined. Everybody does kind of a, a bit of everything and just figure stuff out along the way. But like, it was a big switch. Like, what do you think he saw in you in terms from a skills and experience perspective that you could bring to the table at digging? Well, I think, you know, it was funny. So um, I actually was introduced to Adam because I sent a customer service email there um, because one day I went, I, I would go to dig in for lunch often. At the time, by the way, there weren't that many fast casual restaurants in New York. And so if you wanted to have healthy food for lunch that was delivered quickly, uh, it was one of the only options pretty much. And so one day I walked there and it was like an absolute disaster operationally in the store and something that I really wasn't used to for them. So I sent them an email and I said, hey, like, you know, really love what you're doing. I just like wanted to let you know, like, here are five things that like maybe you could have done better today. Like, no worries, I'll be back. But I just thought you should know. And um, it turned out that they had made like a, a change that day, like a big change for their kind of like how they assembled the plates and whatnot. And so that's why there was a lot of confusion. So Adam was monitoring the customer service emails. And he saw my email and he asked to get coffee. And, you know, I think, first of all, he understood it. It was really coming from a good place. By the way, I never do this. <laughs> like, I never. This is probably the only customer service email I've like ever sent. Um, and so it was like very serendipitous. And we had coffee, and I think he saw someone who, you know, really understood the mission and understood the brand and was willing to work hard. And and you know, he also had a finance background, and I'm sure in some way, you know, I reminded him of himself ten years earlier. So. Um, so he offered me a job, which, which, as you said, like was very non-defined job. I, I was called director of strategy and meant that literally like I could just get any project thrown my way that needed. Yeah, that pretty much in the start of a tree as director of strategy is pretty much director of figuring stuff out as they come. Literally, that was yeah. what it was. It was like, delivery sucks. Can you figure it out? I remember that was my first project. And I was just like, like, I think it took me a week to figure out even what questions to ask to get started on this project. Um, and then, you know, I ended up just always raising my hand when I had new ideas from a design standpoint, a voice standpoint, a marketing standpoint. And eventually he said, if you want, you can become our director of marketing and, and like really help figure out the, um, how we present ourselves into the world. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So it was a random, he probably just saw it as an opportunity to sit down with a customer and get feedback. And it happened that that customer eventually was you and he probably saw skills and talent that he could, he could use in, in, in the startup business. Right. Like that's probably how it, how it all happened. That's, that's yeah. Let's say that. <laughs> wow. And when it came to that entire experience, what, because I know I always say that people that are starting their careers should have an, a, a startup experience just because the amount of, of learning that you can do in a startup is, 
I mean, it's exponentially larger than you can do a large corporation starting up. And I think that a lot of large corporations are actually nowadays looking for people with startup uh, experience. Uh, but for you during that entire process, which skill do you think was the biggest skill that you developed going through that process? that eventually helped you up like up until now was it problem solving was it a really good idea of of marketing uh which skill do you think or what was the biggest lesson that you learned throughout that that biggest experience that you could like looking back and looking back well i mean i'm sure there were some hard skills um i learned so much you know on the marketing front like we did like photo shoots everything like was new for me to be honest but you know in terms of softer skills there was this culture at dig that was really about like taking initiative and wanting to leave things better than you found them. And the more, like, I was really hungry and I really felt really passionate about the company. And it was like the, if, if I raised my hand to take on a project, like it would be my project. And so I think there was this really, this culture of like rolling up your sleeves and making things happen from A to Z. Adam always said it's 1% ideation and 99% execution. And that's so true, especially in the hospitality world. And so it's really something that I took with me and that now I, I expect of all the GIA candidates. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And what about the next transition? Because I'm guessing you had a natural talent for branding and marketing and that's what, in creative direction, eventually that's probably the, why you naturally transitioned to that route, right? Or was it like a conscious thing that it was always something that you were pretty interested in? So you consciously continually worked on those specific skills or was it something that you were just naturally good at? No, actually, I think the hardest part for me was being confident in my creative abilities. So, you know, at Dig, I would just have some ideas and then they'll say, okay, like, let's do that. And um, when I left to join Team Gossier, I actually initially applied for a similar business role that was about helping the brand expand in Europe. And, you know, we ended up like then working, then I think I was hired to actually work for the person that was doing strategy for Glossier. And it was this kind of like, I, I had a very generalist profile because I had very analytical um, skills, but also understood brand. And so it was a, it was a, a slow transition uh, where sort of every role that I was in ended up, you know, gradually becoming more creative because I just had these ideas and they were not like just purely creative ideas. Um, they were, I think, more ideas that were derived from like a true desire to solve a problem for the customer. Yeah, problem solving so, creativity. Exactly. Um, and so I think, you know, when we were trying to build a new channel or acquire people in through different way, or even just thinking about what is it that retail means for a brand like Glossier, it was, um, I think, a lot more about innovating and uh, it was still very much rooted in analysis. Awesome. And when it comes to that, does that does the decision making progress or problem solving problems that you use then is it still the same one that you use to this day, just polished up and improve over 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 time? I think so. You know, I think it's like really about putting the customer first and um, this this compassion for the customer, which is uh, so often overlooked. Which you learned at Goldman Sachs initially, I or was it something that you developed by yourself? Well, I think there's like a, maybe a level of like thoughtfulness in um, all the brands that I've worked with. And then the way that I approach, you know, a uh, brand to customer relations that I'm assuming was maybe taught to me, you know, younger. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think a lot of people struggle with it because I mean, entrepreneurial ventures or again, business ventures in general are rooted in, 
you know, specific principles that you need to always use for, you know, problem solving strategy, all of those things. And a lot of people never really understand them or don't have them. And so for you, as you said, your biggest principle that you've used throughout your career for decision-making, whether it be personally, business-wise has always been focusing on the customer. Yeah, exactly. And is there any other, any other principle that you use for decision-making or that's pretty much the biggest and most important one? Mm, I think that is the overarching principle for sure. Awesome. Yeah. And then probably things come like community, uh, exactly working here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. But it's all about maximizing that customer experience. That's, you know, from there you have better retention, you have better brand affinity, you have like better, um, you know, dissemination of brand principles. You have um, just everything flows from there. You know, it's like the level of care. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And when you transitioned then into Glossier, how was that transition? Was Glossier, because it was 2017, so Glossier, it was, I mean, it was still early stage training in Glossier's sort of startup process still, right? Yeah, it was actually, I think it was actually 2016. So they were still very early and I had been speaking to them for a while, but it was like a brand new world. I mean, Glossier was like the hot startup downtown. Their right. aesthetic was incredible. Like it was like a brand that everyone wanted to to um, have a piece of and, you know, being able to help like build it was so incredible. I, I remember thinking we had so many more means and resources than the big startup. It's like, you know, it was a well-funded um, VC backed company and, you know, obviously like better margins than food. And so I came and I was like, wow, the creative team is 10 people, you know, I had been doing everything with a very small team before. And so the creative team was so many people we had um, and there was really there this desire to do things differently and to do things beautifully. And so um, it was thrilling. Mm-hmm. And, and the working environment, was it also still entrepreneurial? Yeah, was, actually. Was it, more, really was, it more, was it more executive? It was uh, still very entrepreneurial, which was amazing because I think we were maybe 80 when I joined there. Um, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, but it was super collaborative and, you know, um, very flat, I would say everyone's ideas were, you know, heard and, um, Emily was really involved in all pieces that were customer facing. And I mean, I, I, I believe she still is. And, um, and so it was, it was definitely extremely, extremely entrepreneurial still, which is the goals, you know, for like, now we are seven people with Kia, which is super small, but I want to retain that. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, so yeah, special. yeah, that, that culture. Well, I mean, it, yeah. it's it's funny because that's what the biggest companies are trying to do now, right? They're trying yeah. to bring that culture back because they understand how pro, how proactive it is for just for their business the, over the long term. And I think it was it was also probably very productive for you, right? From a from a development perspective, because it wasn't such a like it it was perfect. It felt perfectly in the sense that you had a very entrepreneurial, a way more entrepreneurial role before it dig in. And then you transition into still uh, an entrepreneurial uh, role at Glossier, but there wasn't so, so, so like the gap wasn't that big. It wasn't like you left digging and then you got a a job as an executive in a pre-established company or vice versa, where you, you left a startup to start an even, even earlier startup. So it was, it was very progressive in terms of your personal and career development, right? Yes, for sure. It was very progressive and, you know, you had the opportunity to be exposed to a ton of people and a ton of ideas and across a ton of different fields. You know, I was like, 
involved in some creative meetings and some, you know, we had to figure out like what the budget was going to be for this construction and stores and uh, what the teams look like and figuring out the HR pieces. So it was really also a startup within a startup uh, building retail there. And and, um, again, so defining. Okay. And like the question that I asked at Dig In, like how, because at Dig In, you had the entrepreneurial background, of course, you were starting to be more focused on, you know, the branding, the marketing, the creative aspect of the business. And then you went over to uh, Glossier and you started focusing more on retail channels and offline experiences. So was that a transition also that happened progressively? You joined Glossier with a more creative and brand approach and progressively you started focusing more on a, on a sales-based approach and or was it something again that you jumped in? They recognized the talent, and then you you naturally progressed into that direction. Like how did how did that process work? Yeah, no, um, um, it was a quite a few years ago now. But you know, when I joined, the idea was like this big question, answering this big question of what retail meant for Glossier, and then we transitioned into you know execution. But as we grew the team and started putting more resources towards building it successfully, it you know, I think like if I learned to take initiative at Dig In, I've really learned to have ownership of my projects at Glossier because, you know, at some point when we opened New York and LA, we had something like 130 part-time employees. It was like a huge management role. And, you know, I was uh, the one responsible for, you know, nothing going wrong there. So, um, so that was that was definitely you know a, a much bigger responsibility, bigger because of the scale of it and the number of customers that were impacted, and also you know the revenue that these stores were generating, which was amazing. We had to line out the door, but when you have a lot of customers in a space, it's obviously like a lot of liability. So we just we had to be really always on and um, and make sure that things were as smooth as possible. I you know I learned a lot about operations during that time, um, thankfully, and um, and also just. Uh, you know, I actually, even though I was working in retail because I was part of a digital company, I think that's where I really started learning more about online experience. And that saved me and Gia during the pandemic. No, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. And what would, what would you say was the biggest lesson that you learned in your time in Diggin? And what was the biggest lesson that you learned in your time at Glossier? I think in my time I dig in, I really learned that execution is 99% of it. Like that was something that, you know, Adam was literally repeating every day and I will never forget it, but it's the truth. You know, it's 1% ideation and 99% execution. And, you know, that's why I did not love being a consultant because you hand out, you know, you hand off these ideas and that's 1%. And then you look at the execution of the project and you're like, what the hell? Yeah, what what, the what happened? Yeah, like, yeah. what is going on? I cannot. This is not. This is not how it's supposed to be. So that was um, for the game. And then I think at Glossier it was like, really think about the customer. Really put yourself in the shoes of the customer. Blow the customer's mind. Have fun. Um, you know, be thoughtful. That was that was really something that like Emily repeated all the time. And and I think it's so important. The the best brands are the brands that do that. Mm-hmm. No, I get it. Yeah, awesome. And and when it comes when it came to your, your maturity, I guess that's the word for it at Glossier, because it was sort of just maturing from an entrepreneurial role to a more management oriented and leadership oriented uh, goal. I mean, role. Uh, in hindsight, what would you say is the job of a leader in that position? You know, in a, in a company that's growing really really fast. Is it just putting things together that are breaking? Is it making sure that the culture isn't compromised? Like, what would you say your biggest role as a manager and as a leader during that period at Glossier was? I think it's 
being the person who makes sure that everyone can do their best job. And sometimes it's a little bit thankless because often in these startups, you have to manage people and that's your main job, but you also have to do a bunch of other work that no one on your team is responsible for. And you feel like you can't do the later because you are spending a lot of your time on management, but actually that's what is most important. So it's sometimes uh, very difficult to be a manager in these high growth startups, but also very important. And the ones that are good managers, like I have, my life has been impacted by a number of good managers and, you know, I am so grateful for them and also admire them. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. And what about the biggest mistakes that you made during your time at, at uh, Diggin and then your biggest mistakes that you did in Glossier? It could, it could be personal. You don't have to go professional mistakes because maybe they don't even know about them. <laughs> but uh, what, would you, what would you think those, those are? Well, honestly, I think the biggest mistake is that, you know, I was taking things very personally because I was in my early 20s and I was um, really wanting to prove myself and, you know, defining myself a lot through the work that I was doing. And um, I think I burned myself out uh, on both counts. Um, and um, and it's something that I'm trying not to do again because, you know, now it's like there's no escaping. There's no leaving my job and taking a break. And um, I think really separating myself and the, val- the validation of, you know, my work is so important. And I think that's something that maybe comes a little bit later in life, but the lesson was the same. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And from, from uh, as you said, just, just burning yourself out and working all the time, uh, have you always had that natural flaw of just being highly, highly disciplined and consistent uh, and yet other aspects of your life falling through maybe personal relationships, maybe uh, just <laughs> fulfillment hobbies. Cause it, it is a very common problem, right? That people never talk about uh, if you are going, because I think your career has developed extremely quickly and productively. I mean, you're older than me, but what I've, what I've seen is that people have the same career development that you've had in, because how old are you? 30? Yes. I mean, people, people have had the same career development that you'd have, but they're 45, right? And you know this. So it's been, you've, you've obviously worked really hard through the entire process and you've done things really, really right in terms of you've, you've, you've progressively worked at challenging, very challenging environments, but doing that comes at a cost, right? Like it's not, it's not a free lunch. Life isn't. Uh, so in your personal scenario, going through that process, what was some of the bis- most difficult aspects of of that aspect of maybe just being burnt out, being feeling depressed, feeling that you, like your social life, your love life was kind of left in shambles. Like for you, what, what kind of sacrifices did you have to make? Or for sure. You always, I mean, because it's very difficult, right? It takes, it takes year to find that sweet spot in order to, for you to continue having that. And yet, you know, finding that balance takes a long time. So for you, well, that's all right. So for you, what would you say? Well, like what, what mistakes, what problems, what challenges did you have going through that process? For sure. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it sounds worse than it is, but it's like, I'm a nerd, I'm a neurotic nerd and I really wanted to get everything right. And I think that, you know, maybe overlooking, um, health and, you know, hobbies and, you know, activities and not valuing time that's, is not kind of productive per se was the biggest mistake of my twenties. And I'm something that I'm also working on course correcting. I think I've definitely like in the past few years found a better balance and, um, and it's something I want to keep going. And I also want to build into the culture of Kia. I think we're also seeing 
um, culturally, people value, you know, downtime more than we used to 10 years ago when we were like sort of trying to compete against ourselves and against, you know, our MacBook Air. So, um, so hopefully that's a, that's a, that's a good learning for not just me, but a lot of people. Awesome. Now jumping through, uh, to the actual entrepreneur, like the, like, you know, hands to the ground, uh, entrepreneurial experience with Gia, how did everything like start? Did you always have this desire to start an entrepreneurial venture by yourself ever since you were starting your career? Or was it something that progressively, like it was just a natural, it was just the the next step for you? No, actually it was kind of a hard decision going on my own because, you know, I think for a few years I had worked either directly for or very closely with successful CEOs who had given me, you know, a lot of opportunities. And I was really comfortable, you know, it's like, if I don't have to do the fundraising and the dealing with all of these other things, and you're in this like amazing structure where you have to do your best work, um, that's like really comfortable. I guess I didn't really realize at the time, but when I had the idea for Gia, I just became so excited by it that it trumped everything else. It was like felt very vocational and that it was yeah. like, it's all I could think about, you know, I was still consulting and I had this idea and I sort of took it on as a consulting project. And I was like, I couldn't stop. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was like, it was like things all over my wall. I was just like, I, I, I just like started really quickly having clear vision for what I wanted it to look like. And also this deep desire to bring it to market because I felt like there was a need for it. And, so it took me a little bit more than a year and a half to bring Gia to life, but it was like dog years, you know, it's just like really, uh, really, really high intensity. Awesome. I will get to, I do want to talk about that first year and a half for sure. Uh, but before we do that, when it comes to when you, because it, it's, what would you say is the hardest thing about making that jump of, you know, being a consultant or, or, or being, or working for somebody else to just actually being completely entrepreneurial? Well, suddenly you don't have a paycheck coming in and that's the hardest part. You know, you live in New York City and everything is expensive. Um, and um, you just, you know, it's like you know that you have to rush for that reason to either raise money or to get revenue in or, you know, both at the same time. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's, it's very real. Being an entrepreneur in New York City is very, very difficult. Yeah, the, so the, I, did, the... I did both for a long time. I, I was consulting and I was working on Gia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started phasing out some projects and only keeping a few to pay the bills. But it was it was really challenging. Right. It's, it's And the, just the levels of responsibility, right? Because even like, for example, when you started dig in, like the, the company was already there. You know, people, I think people tend to have this idea that getting a company is something that I don't want to say easy because people talk about this all the time, but just getting something to work like being able to hire five people is probably the, the, the for, I mean, based on my entrepreneurial experience has been the most difficult part of the entire process for me. Like just getting, just getting the first $5,000 in was, I mean, and then people don't really expect that. Right. But did, did you yeah. have a very similar experience? For sure. I mean, you know, we're, we're, I guess we're seven people this week, but we were five of last week. And so that's, you know, it was like three years later. Um, it's, it's, and uh, you know, we also launched at the worst possible time. So we had to, we were ready for a launch and then we had to completely pivot uh, because of the pandemic. We were supposed to launch on April 1st, 2020 in restaurants only with an IRL 
only launched, which was um, wow. just not ideal. And so, and so it was, uh, it was hurdle after hurdle. So once we launched and we, you know, I think we made like around $10,000 on our first day online. It was like crazy. You know, wow. we were like, we had one product, by the way, just, just the bottle. And, um, and we were shipping it ourselves. We had rented a restaurant that was shut down and we were packing the boxes and writing notes for customers as, as they were shipping out. Wow. And when it, when it came to the, the idea for Gia, how did that come up? Was it, was it based on market research? Was it just something that you always wanted to do? Because you said now there's been kind of a personal, like a conflict between, you know, what, what it originally standed out for and what you personally stand out, stand up for. But uh, at the very beginning, how did the idea, how did you get the idea for Gia? No, I, I, I think what I meant when I said that is that I think I just need to separate my personal life from my gear life a little bit because right, it's just it. so all encompassing. But actually yeah. the idea for Gia, it was, uh, it was born out of a personal desire to make entertaining more inclusive. I haven't been drinking for a few years for a few reasons. It was like, you know, when I moved to the U S as I said, I like started having these like stomach pains and then I was always trying to cut things out to see how I feel and I realized wow alcohol is not the trigger but I just generally feel so much better when I don't drink I feel less anxious I have so much more energy I um I always tell people that you know not drinking I feel like I operate at 100% whereas before I was operating at 70% like I don't have the morning fog and so many reasons and so I, it had been in front of my eyes the whole time because I have been complaining about how there's nothing for me to drink for years, like actual years, way before, um, you know, the very first, you know, well-known non-out brand C-Lip launched. It was like, and it was just, I just never thought that I would have my own company, that I would do something like this. And, um, and then one day it just came to me and then I started looking at their market research, but it was still a very nascent category. So you had the white papers from Diageo, but of course they were incubating the brand and they were also writing the research for it. So it's like, you know, we just kind of had the case study of the UK because there's a few brands there that are successful, but there wasn't very much. And so you kind of had to take a chance and believe that if you created the supply, then the demand would come, you know? Wow. So that, that belief was the one thing that pushed you forward. That's, that's risky. I mean, well, not risky, but that is emotionally challenging, you know, especially, right. you know, because it's a, uh, man, I can't relate. I can relate with stuff like that. I, especially because, you know, people believe that entrepreneurs are these like super solid, you know, emotional figures with like no anxiety, confidence, no fears whatsoever. But that is usually not the case. There's a lot of, as you said, highly, highly neurotic people that just have like this vision that they want to pursue. And the entrepreneurial for people like the, the entrepreneurial people process for people like that is extremely emotionally challenging because a lot of it is it is is that it's just continuous uncertainty. For sure, I mean, I, you know, I think we write in all of our job descriptions like you have to be excited by ambiguity because it's just like being an entrepreneur is emotionally challenging, and um, you know, launching a product that you sell to restaurants in the pandemic has been emotionally challenging. It's just been one thing after the other. So, you know, I, I thought I was made of steel and I definitely am not, but mm -hmm. I'm still here. So that's what matters. Wow. And when it came to the financial, like the startup financials, did you get investment? Was it self-funded? Uh, did you just save up a lot of money when you were working as a consultant, as an executive, and then just used it all on this project, both in the business and in just surviving along the process? Like how did you manage finances? 
little bit of everything except for the saving a lot of money parts. Um, so I had, you know, when I was consulting, I started funding the business myself. I hired uh, one person to consult uh, for me and then who later ended up becoming our CEO. Actually, he's still with us today. He's wonderful. Shout out Henry. And then also a, a formulator, a food scientist to help me because I sort of knew what I wanted. I wanted, he had to taste like, an Italian tomorrow. I wanted, you know, I was a Campari soda girl before. I loved that true aperitif, but I felt like it was just always too sweet, really unhealthy. There was no transparency around the ingredients. And so I wanted to take this um, idea of like really honoring the seasons and honoring the ingredients and especially the ingredients that came from where I'm from, like the South of France was, you know, something that tastes like summer. And so he really helped me do that. It's very difficult to create a formula that is stable when you have really high quality extracts um, like we do because they can sometimes interact with each other and you don't have booze to preserve it. So um, so I had to kind of bring in professional help and um, he's super great and, and we still work with him today. So um, so that was the very first the very first step. And then nine or ten months later, um, towards the end of 2019, I ended up getting investment from friends and family for a very small um, friends and family round, which carried us through our launch. Yeah. Awesome. And what, what was the first round? 20 to 50,000, I'm guessing, or even less. Uh, no, it was more, but we can't discuss that. All right. That's okay. <laughs> uh, now when it comes to, so you, you, you were consulting and then on the side, you were consistently developing the business, right? Yes. So it wasn't like, I'm going to stop consulting and I'm going to focus entirely on this business. Well, as project finished um i ended up not taking I, I just phased them out so because i think when i started yeah i had seven clients which was too much too many in the first place and so i uh, i ended up keeping i think two for the first you know year and a half and then one um i was consulting for sweet green and they've been so supportive and they were just like a really amazing client and friends and you know one of the sweet green founders is one of our advisors now so um so i i ended up working with them through a few months into this past year Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And what would you say, what, what took you the longest? Was it make starting like getting revenue or getting the product right? Because here's the thing about, about something that I'm guessing was a very big challenge for Gia and correct me if I'm wrong, but just getting the product to uh, like, like this, you know, there's this, this, this idea of just creating something as quickly as, as you can. And that barely works and start selling it. You can't do that with drinks, right? Like you can't, you can't just have something that is not perfect and start selling it. So people put it and like literally ingest it into their body. So, um, how, how long did that process take? Like just getting the, the first drink to just be right. Yeah. It took a really long time, but we weren't, I don't want to say we weren't rushing because we were definitely working at a very fast pace, but there was no question in my mind that we needed to get the product right before launching. So, uh, it took 55 weeks. It was, uh, it was, it was insane, actually. Like we had, uh, I remember in uh, February of 2020, right before the pandemic was when we were super close and we were just making the final tweaks on the formula. And I hosted a brunch and I cooked for um, so many of my friends and I was taking feedback on little post-it notes and um, got everyone to try it, kind of like force feeding them Gia. And we had like over 200 people came that day, like throughout the entire day. It was really fun. I could not stop putting frittatas in the oven to feed everyone. And I had all these notes on little post-its that were like too bitter, not enough, you know, citrus. And we started making recipes and, um, and then, you know, we were ready weeks later, pretty much with our final round. Wow. 
Wow, that sounds very, very intense. And when it comes to the, which skills do you think were the most helpful with your career in starting GIA? Um, I think curiosity and tenacity. <laughs> curiosity at the beginning because nothing like that had really been done before. Um, you know, I think I think uh, Ken had launched sort of like in the time that I had started working for GIA. Um, but it was very different. It was very functional beverage. It was ready to drink. So it didn't quite feel like some example of something. It, it was just not the same. Uh, and I think often because it was non-alcoholic, people like to put us in the same category. But especially right when they launched, they were a little bit different than they are today. And so it just it just didn't feel like a playbook that you know we could sort of learn from yet. And I, I'm also very concerned always with differentiation and doing our own thing. So I think a lot of it is also self-conflicted where I'm always thinking, how can we be different? Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, and then tenacity, you know, I think it's definitely the one now because the past few months have been trying with the COVID supply chain and uh, in general, and, and, you know, I guess now Omicron and uh, just this kind of third wave of COVID. So it just feels really never ending, but we are going to persevere. <laughs> wow. No, I can't imagine the challenges. And I really do want to talk about that in a second. Uh, Cause I mean, we rarely get the chance to get the insight from somebody that's been living an experience like this specifically in your industry, which is probably one of the most, if not the, the one that has been the most affected by this whole thing. Uh, now going back into the, the, the sort of skills that you were able to leverage very productively for your entrepreneurial experience at Gia. Um, what about pragmatic skills that you noticed like the, like this, you suddenly notice that oh, it's it's very it happens to be. I'm lucky. That I am I'm very good at I don't know marketing or branding or operations. Like from a, from a, from a startup perspective, which pragmatic skill do you think you were able to leverage the most productively? Hmm, that's a very good question. I mean, I I definitely love brand and design, but I also feel like you can't think of brand and design in a vacuum, and so I think. My forte is actually probably putting all these pieces together and being the glue. And um, that's, it's often difficult because I want to spend all my time on brand and design and being CEO of Guiana, I have to delegate a lot and spend my time on all of these other things to make sure that they run smoothly. Um, so I would say that that's probably the number one focus right now. Yeah, because I mean, branding and design is also a long term strategy, right? Like it's it's really like they're very they're highly, highly, highly important. Uh, but it's really like you can't expect a startup to be completely focused on branding on or design unless you have, you know, a, an incredible access to financial resources, right? Exactly. And it's the why it's the what and it's the how. So it's really important. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when it came, so at the very beginning, what was your, your competitive advantage? Was it timing? Did you get timing right? Was it the, the focus that you were putting on design? Was it, I don't know, operate? What, what sort of competitive advantage do you think you had starting off and in this very, because drinks are a highly, highly competitive space. So what do you think made Gaia differently? Or Gia differently, sorry. Um, well, definitely not timing. We launched at the worst possible time. That was so difficult because no one could try it, you know? And it was like, there was no... When we launched our spritz the following year, we like handed over cans of spritzes on the street and whatnot. But when we launched, like everyone, everything was shut down. So um, I think that 
our brand voice carried us through a lot because in spite of it all, like, you know, we realized that our product was definitely not a necessity uh, in the current environment, but we, there was this joie de vivre in the product that was really about celebrating and about, you know, being together, even if we couldn't, that I think people really related to. And we were very thoughtful with every aspect of our packaging design to try to get as close to an in-person experience, like even though it was going through FedEx, um, mm-hmm. that, that we could. So um, we had a lot of word of mouth. You know, at first it was like our friends supported us and then they told other friends and um, I think, you know, obviously we're only like a year and a half old, but we definitely wanted to be as thoughtful as possible. And like, it was a slow ramp up for sure. Like the first summer was slow and, and I was worried. I mean, I'm still worried all the time, but, um, but in general, you know, I think people say, oh, I've been seeing yeah everywhere. I'm like, that's so great, but you probably live in Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, a hundred percent. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. So it was, I mean, at the end of the day, the competitive advantage was the focus and care that you guys put into branding and design for it to feel like an experience without having the actual experience. Yeah. Okay. And how much, like from a marketing perspective, again, it was all word of mouth from, from the get go, right? No advertising, no influencer marketing, no fancy stuff, just getting the product right and getting the right people on the product. Our marketing strategy when we launched was send a newsletter to all the people that randomly had signed up on our site, which was maybe 300 people and then um, post on Instagram to like no one that followed us. I mean, I think I maybe had maybe 10,000 followers, probably less than that actually. And um, you know, Henry, my CEO, probably less than a thousand. And so it was like, not exactly a ton, but we gifted, we gifted a lot of the formula in development to people and asking for their opinion. And so I think a lot of people felt vested in our success and helped us reshare. Um, so we definitely had a super strong community from the beginning that still is with us today. Awesome. So yeah, I was more invested on how can we, how can we get people to actually feel part of the community so that in the future, when the product's ready, when they're ready for long, they're already so, so invested into who we stand to, what went into our product, what we stand for as a, as a brand uh, that they were actually became customers, right? Yes, exactly. It was wow. really like making feel people part of the yeah story. Mm-hmm. Okay. And did you always have? Did you always use the same? Like you did from from a customer research perspective? Was the customer always somebody that you already knew who they was because of, again the or, the organic nature of your first stage parts of, of of growth, or was it somebody that you had to develop? Oh, you know the the consistent and the the trifling and difficult customer development process. Um, actually at first, you know, our first day of sales, it was like all of our friends were ordering. Um, and then a few people, we got one article in Vogue that day. And so I'm sure there were like some people there because it was really new and exciting. It was like truly just like our launch day. Um, and then, you know, that slowly changed. And now, you know, I looked yesterday and I think there was one person that I knew on our order lists that was someone that was a friend of mine or, you know, supported. And I was like, wow, all these strangers and all these zip codes in different states that I've never been in. That's so amazing. Um, so it, it definitely at first it was our community. And then what we quickly realized is, and that was maybe a silver lining of the pandemic is that from the customer, this is very anecdotal. It's from the customer service emails that we were getting, but we had a customer that was much older than the one that we expected. You know, you launched a product on Instagram, you expect 
to have like 70% female demographic, probably 25 to 35. And, you know, we had a lot of older customers that were messaging us, sharing recipes. It was often like even like thanking us for making this product. And what I realized is that the common thread was that people had been quarantining with their parents, ordered Gia and would have a drink together in the evening. And then we had this, you know, uh, parents customer that uh, that really appreciated the kind of aperitivo hour and lifestyle and repeated and told their friends about it. And so that was an amazing surprise for me, you know, being able to um, set kind of like plant the seed for a cross-generational brand and not an Instagram brand because I really, really admire, you know, these older European uh, brands and so that's I think the first step to to getting there yeah and also I mean also the the validation of of your product right which is something that you really need going through that process it's things that are just so difficult that just anybody any surprise is good for motivation for you to just continuously keep going and as a reminder that what you're doing actually is worth something right for sure and actually one of the fun things that happened uh, at the beginning was that obviously everyone was remote everyone was just at home and we had about 10 percent of gia that was gifted so i would read all of the gift notes from people wow wow that's awesome so like for a little pick me up would you say that was like uh i mean more i guess i'll just ask the question differently but what has been the most rewarding moment from the entire process so far for you um, I think it's the individual customers. I mean, there were obviously like some really strong wins, like being able to be on the menu at some of our favorite establishments or, you know, recognized by chefs that we really admire. Those were, you know, great small wins, but I think it's actually the notes from people that don't, we don't know personally that mattered the most because we know that they're very unbiased lives that we've touched. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I can imagine. And the, the, the fun is, so the, the part of, of the business where you actually started, you know, getting a little bit heavier on the investment perspective, was it for building those community ex, uh, experiences or was it most, mostly to get the product right, uh, to start hiring people from operational perspective? Like what, 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 what did you really need the money for when you're starting out? What was a it little bit of stuff? everything. Uh, we raised our seed round last year uh, and it was not a very big seed round and, you know, we'll raise our series A this year, but primarily actually was inventory because we were too small to borrow um, for, you know, big, big enough debts um, for us to be able to fund our inventory and the minimum quantities are really high. Mm-hmm. And then also hiring a team, which has been like the most rewarding part of it. Most rewarding part of it. Awesome. And at this at this particular moment in time, are you what would you, what, what would you say you are? You're more focused on finding talent. Are you more focused on getting the expanding your product range? Are you more focused on you, you just marketing? What would you say you're more focused on right now? Well, actually, um, and sadly, I would say it feels like we're going backward a little bit because with survivor mode again. Supp- yeah, with all the supply chain issues with COVID, like we've been really focused in the past few months and we're going to be really focused in all of Q1 of this year on building redundancy in our vendor portfolio um, so that we don't, you know, run the risk of a product stock out. We only have three products, two spritzes, one bottle. So, you know, any issue in supply chain for one of them can really put us at risk. So we're going to be, you know, fundraising in a few months and we're also going to be um, um, you know, kind of, it feels like we're rebuilding the company from scratch because we're just building defensibility before we really start expanding. We're actually already working on, uh, really exciting new products that are going to be launching in 2023. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, divi- you're diversifying both your strategy and operations so that you're not put in this position again in the future, right? 
Um, exactly, but also just like, you know, diversifying our um, portfolio of vendors so that if one of them cannot deliver on a product, right. like we have someone else that can do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And going into this, this entire COVID chat problem, um, how early in your, your business development process did COVID like start? Like did you just really start feeling the effects of COVID? Was it months? Was it six months in? Was it literally weeks into the launch? Was it year into the launch? No, the supply chain issues are very much like a 2021 issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Although we did feel the effects of COVID, you know, because all the restaurants shut down like very early before we launched. Right. So it was it was more sales problems from the from the beginning because potential prospects or vendors or clients just weren't didn't really have the need for the product, and now it's become more of a supply chain problem. Or both. Exactly. No, that's exactly what it is. Okay. And in the first year, I mean, which one has been more challenging, I'm guessing? The supply chain problem or the sales problem? Um, the past few months, it's been the supply chain problem. I think that because we pivoted to, you know, launching online, we've actually found our customer and our customer has found us even more. So that's been, um, that's been good. But beyond that, uh, the supply chain issues. And I, I'm sure that's something that a lot of founders that come on your podcast can relate because they're very much industry agnostic um, across the board. So, um, so that's something that we'll, we'll aim to resolve, but I think it will take another 18 months. Right. So first it was pivoting in terms of the, the sales strategy, and now it's pivoting in terms of the, uh, the supply chain problem. Exactly. Okay. And with the sales problem, like how did you approach pivoting? Because I mean, it was pretty much, Jesus, it's, it's such a, it's such a big pivot that maybe the customer might've changed completely. Right. Or was it always the same customer? It was, it was just about testing different channels out. Well, we're selling a beverage that is meant to make gathering more inclusive. So for us, it was really natural, especially given my work experience to want to create to want to change, you know, we always say our mission is to change the way we drink, gather, and think. And so we wanted people to be able to have um, a positive association between GIA and, you know, like an evening out. And and so it would be like proving them that you could go out and not drink and have a great time. And so for us, it was like we had partnered with all the chefs and we wanted to have like the friends and family launch where you could order GIA on the menu for a minute period of time, send us feedback and before a big kind of launch where we would we would basically test this channel, but we were never meant to sell only in restaurants, but we wanted to introduce the product through the hands of the people that made the food that goes with it. Because so much of Gia is actually making a beverage that will honor the food that it's supposed to go with, as opposed to like giving you like a juice-based mocktail that's just going to cut your appetite before you even get to the appetizer. Mm-hmm. And so um, when we pivoted, we didn't have a choice. It was like restaurants were shut down. Like restaurants did not know if they were going to survive. We did not know if there would be restaurants. Like when we were coming out of this, we had no idea how long it would take. Um, I mean, it was literally like, you know, April, 2020. And so we, some of our investors said you should pause. And I'm so happy that we didn't listen to them because we would probably still be on pause today. And, um, we just kind of just went for it and launched online. So we developed the packaging as quickly as we could. Thankfully, at the time, it was faster to develop the packaging than it is today. And we built a website really scrappily. Our friend Simon developed it. Um, he designed and developed it, and like we wrote all the copy for it ourselves. Like we did everything ourselves. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the copy on the box, behind the label, the 
um, everything. And so, and then when we launched, I think it probably looked a little crafty and homemade, but like our photography was really beautiful um, because we worked with Nacho Alegre, who was like, you know, we can't really work because photo shoots are all canceled, but my studio is downstairs and I have a full team and I would love to work on this. And so the hardest part was figuring out how to get Gia to his studio because like there were less flights going to Spain from the US. And uh, and once we did, like we sort of did this like crazy Zoom photo shoot and it turned out so nice. And, and I think people really saw how much effort we put into it. So that was, that was the good part. Awesome. And how many... How many, when it came to your, your, like the testing periods for, for new customer segments, or in this case, a new channel, the new online channel, or the, the sort of influencer, influencer marketing, quote unquote, approach that you had, how many, like, how do you approach the test? Because let me, let me think about how to post, how to say this question correctly. When you have such a short and fast deadline for your product, I mean, there was literally a one one day after the other, everything changed. How did you approach testing new strategies and which one worked? Because, you know, testing what works and what doesn't takes a lot of time, especially if you're testing new channels. Was the first thing, like the first thing that you did, did it work? Or did you have to really quickly test things out, iterate, test things out, iterate again? Um, I think we're constantly testing things out. I think when we launched, we weren't even thinking about it in terms of different cohorts of customers. We were just putting our product out in the world and, you know, uh, because we, it's not like a lot of people think that our customer is a customer who doesn't drink. We have people that say, Oh, it's great if you're pregnant or it's great if you're sober. And it's like 80% of our customer is a customer who identifies as, as a drinker and maybe is just trying to, um, moderate. Right. Right. No, I get that. But I meant more from a, from a, you know, maybe marketing strategy perspective, for example, I understand that from a customer perspective, you, there, there wasn't really a lot of testing or iterating that you had to do because you got that right at the very beginning. But from a, for example, sales channel perspective, I mean, you had to figure so many things out very so quickly that, I mean, how did you know if you should start using, focusing on, on advertising from the get-go, maybe social media advertising, Facebook advertising, Instagram advertising, email lists, like how did, how did you know what to prioritize on when you were going through such a quick pivot? I mean, you know, first it was like, can people buy it? So it was like the sites. And then beyond that, you know, we did a little bit of ads, but at the very, at the very beginning, it was so little. Um, it was, and it was like, I was just uploading stuff to, you know, Facebook and Instagram, not knowing anything. Um, and then, um, you know, from there, we, we started just learning and adding to it, but, you know, we didn't launch emails that were well-designed until like six months later. And we didn't launch, you know, when we had uh, our friend Haley um, started to come in and help us with emails. And so it was just like, it's been definitely like a transition and we're still learning today because a lot of people will know in um, the summer of 2021, like Facebook and Instagram with the iOS 14 updates really started working less well. And so we had to learn and diversify into new channels. We did our first out of home advertisements in December on the streets of New York and LA. We're going to be doing our first podcasts in two weeks. Um, so just, it's a lot of small things compounding and working together is what I realized. And so, you know, we just learn and we iterate, we're constantly iterating. Right. Awesome. And the biggest, I mean, the, the only way you can do that or the way that you're able to do that is with a good team, right? Exactly. Because I mean, I mean, your, your priorities as an entrepreneur is just pretty much well, I mean, your, your, your role as an entrepreneur at this particular moment in time is just pretty much problem solving and prioritizing, I'm guessing, right? And hiring. Yeah. 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 Okay. Wow. 
I mean, and here's here's what I loved about 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 the conversation so far. I mean, I think that you can get the sense of both worlds quite clearly. You can get the sense of what progressing through a corporate sphere feels like and looks like. Like it's very progressive. Yes, there's challenges. There's big learning curves. Uh, but when you start diving into entrepreneurial roles, I mean, everything just changes completely because it really all comes. It's an emotional challenge. People think that it's it's something that you have to be technically prepared for. Like you have to understand business, you have to understand sales, you have to have this, this skill set, that's good. But it really all comes down to character traits and just being able to emotionally withstand the process. Yes, exactly. Okay, awesome. And, and so far, and just to end the conversation on, on this note, because I'm, I'm based on everything that we talked about, I'm very, very interested in what you're going to say to this. Uh, it's a cheesy question, but it's a question that I ask all the time uh, and take as long as you want to think this through. Based on everything that you've gone so far, what would be the best, and I'm going to say this question in two parts, what would be the best piece of personal advice that you'd give yourself and why? And what would be the best piece of business advice that you'd give yourself and why? Hmm. Okay, give me a minute. I think the best piece of personal advice that I give myself all the time and I give others all the time is just really like a life motto for me is how you spend your days is how you spend your life. And so you can't always be looking for like the next goal, whether it's for yourself or your company, it's just like enjoying every day because that's, you know, all these small bits um, aggregated to your whole life. So whether it's like little routines or whether it is just, um, the way that you work or the way that you communicate or the way that you gather with your team or your friends, um, the things that you eat on the daily, the small decisions, they all add up. So that's my personal advice to myself. How mm -hmm. I spend my days is how I spend my life. And um, the second one, a business advice um, that I received before I started DIA and is more prevalent now than ever because we get solicited all the time is because something is a good opportunity doesn't mean you have to take it and really having to um, say no all the time. And I'm very much a yes person, um, but we, I feel like now I have to say no all the time so that I can stay focused on executing well on the things that we decide we're going to put resources and efforts behind. Okay. Awesome. And what would be like, like a good example for that, for that scenario? Like, you, mean, you know, like, we get, we get asked ahead, to do really exciting partnerships all the time and you realistically, we can only do one um, every few months uh, because we're a super small team and we want to do it proper and we want everyone that interacts with the team to have a good experience and we want customers to have a positive experience of GIA. Um, so we have to say no to stuff that's like really cool. And so uh, hopefully, you know, in the future, we'll build more resources and we'll be able to do more. But right now we have to do what we do well before we start to expand. And so that's been the focus. Awesome. 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 Melanie. Well, wow. I think that was a highly, highly educational uh, <laughs> podcast. I think, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's hard to I feel. Mean, I hope. I no, no. It, I, here's the thing. It's, it's really hard. It's really hard to teach about entrepreneurship. It really is because again, it's, it's, it, it's more about understanding the character traits about each entrepreneur than it is about, again, understanding theories or understanding concepts or this and that even even having experience you know there's a lot of people that have zero experience with anything never had a job and they worked their corporation but they're incredible entrepreneurs 
you know, and then, and then there's also the other way around. There's people that are highly, highly, I mean, they're executives with years and years of experience that can, that can take a brand that's not making money and make it into a billion dollar brand in years, but you get them in an entrepreneurial space and they just can't do it. And I think your personal story has, is, is just the perfect case study of the entire thing of how you should approach building a professional career if that's what you want. And also what it's like to be an entrepreneur, you know, like the reality of it, because I think people have a lot of false expectations or fake expectations. And when they, they actually get into both parts, either the corporate sphere or the entrepreneurial sphere, they got very disappointed or they're just not ready for it, you know? So, uh, no, I think it was an incredible episode, Melanie. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being here, especially now that you said that you have to say no to a lot of things. I'm glad you said <laughs> yes to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you. And thank you so much for having me.